This B Podcast Network show is presented by IXL. IXL's all-inclusive online teaching and learning platform simplifies ed tech needs and accelerates achievement in 95 of the top 100 U.S. school districts. IXL delivers personalized learning across a comprehensive pre-K-12 curriculum, including math, language arts, science, and social studies, and it helps you assess student performance through actionable real-time insights at every level of your school or district. This one solution performs work that typically requires dozens of different tools. Want to find out why so many leading districts trust IXL? Visit IXL.com forward slash B-E. That's IXL.com forward slash B-E. Every child deserves a team. That's the belief behind Jigsaw Learning, a proud sponsor of the B Podcast Network. And it's why the company, founded by educators Curtis and Lorna Hewson, focuses on ensuring success for all learners through collaborative response, an approach in which every child is supported by a team. Through customized professional learning that incorporates workshops, leadership development, online learning opportunities, and more, Jigsaw Learning can guide you every step of the way to create a plan to maximize the collective capacity in your schools. Learn more at jigsawlearning.ca. You're listening to the Authority Podcast on the B Podcast Network. Welcome in listeners for today's show. I am joined by Roger Stark, CEO of Brainware Learning Company. And we're going to talk about Roger's book, which was co-authored with award-winning educator Betsy Hill. It is called Your Child Learns Differently, Now What? The Truth for Parents. So this is a book that's written for parents to better understand their child's learning. But also there's a lot of discussion points here we can get into for educators to understand. Of course, many of you educators are parents as well. So there's a lot of conversation here about this book. Roger, welcome to the show. I'm delighted to be here. Thank you so much for having us. So I, I wanted to start first with one of the things that you mentioned right very early on in the book, and you know that is clear, makes a lot of sense. Most people, I think, understand this and kind of know it intuitively, and yet at the same time, it's not always built in intentionally to learning, which is that we best remember experiences right that are associated with strong emotion. So of course we understand this. We know that we remember things that were traumatic or sad or made us angry or very happy and joyful, right? And and yet, and, and we talk about it a lot in school, how we, students who had negative experiences really hold that to them. Students who are uh, having a good time and they're engaged and they're really into what they're learning, they really pick up that. But yet, do, do we intentionally build that in enough to say, like, let's use this emotional tie and its connection to the things we remember and learn best to our advantage uh, as an intentional strategy. Anytime you're communicating more senses you can touch, the greater likelihood it's going to stay, whatever that is. So when you visually or you auditorily or you kinesthetically have an experience, it, it just further deepens the meaning and the relationship to your memory over a period of time. So that's important for learning. Yeah, thanks. Absolutely. And, you know, you also reference how cognitive skills or a person's capacity to learn can be developed a lot more than most people think. What is a, the typical 
view on that, you know, as far as the maybe the limited or limiting beliefs that most people have around everybody's uh, ability to develop their capacity to learn? Well, I think a lot of people think whatever the capacity they're born with, that's what they're born with. We believe that the most underutilized asset in the learning and teaching process is the student. Yes, we are born to learn. That's what human beings do. However, our capacity for learning is shaped by our environment and our genetics and our life experiences, as we just talked about. And the reality is we do not all come today to school today prepared to learn at the same levels. When our public education system was put together 100 years ago, we all pretty much looked and feel and came from pretty much the same type of environment. That's not the case today. And so that's a big problem. That's a big problem. But the great news that we always like to say to people is those things may shape you, but I got great news for you. You're the CEO of U Inc. And if you want different, you can have different, but you got to do differently. The discussion today in education is primarily focused on school choice and methodology. And those are good discussions to have. There's no doubt. But what we believe that the overarching factor that needs to be included is the science of learning. You're never going to optimize that whole learning and teaching process without incorporating the learning. It's such an enormous wasted asset that we have. These, these little piles are buckets of gold. All of our American students, 53 millions of buckets of gold, and we don't do anything with it. It's almost like going to the grocery store to buy a bunch of groceries today. Then you just throw it in the trash. You don't even check it out and eat it. And these children play a vital role in the learning and teaching process because we believe inside every little person, there's somebody special just trying to step into their best self. And God didn't create any junk. So let's be clear, by no child you've ever met or no child you ever will meet. So we just want to broaden that discussion, the science of learning, the science of teaching, and school choice methodology. Those things are all good stuff, but they're not going to be as well without the science of learning. And you, you share a graphic that cognitive skills make up 50% of the capacity to learn come equal to the combined percentage of academic factors and social emotional factors. And yet I think when we say the term cognitive skills, I don't know if everybody has a clear idea of exactly what that's referring to. Can you just kind of define cognitive skills as we're discussing them? Your cognitive ability is your ability. It's, it's about the science and the art of learning. It's like your attention skills, your visual processing, your auditory processing skills, your short-term memory, your long-term memory, your working memory, your sensory integration. These are all things that happen subconsciously in your mind. You're not aware that it's actually happening when it's happening, especially if it's happening properly, it's happening subconsciously. So these skills, we, were, we are considered today the world's most researched, comprehensive, integrated cognitive skill development tool delivered online in the world. We operate in 71 countries in all 50 states. But cognitive skills are the underlying foundational skills. It's building a house. If you build a house on a bad foundation, it'll collapse. Learning is no different. The most important thing that a parent can do is to ensure that their cognitive foundation is working as effectively and as efficiently as they possibly can. Now, why is that so important? Because that's how information enters into your brain is through your cognitive skills. Your cognitive skills is what allows you to process information for learning. So if any one of those skills are not working as effectively and as efficiently as they can, 
learning and behaviors will be far more of a struggle than it needs to be. Okay. And, you know, you referenced BrainWare, BrainWare Safari, but with respect to, you know, the research-based tool for this. And I think another thing that's relevant to touch on as we get into this is the difference between the benefits that video game technology can have towards learning versus quote unquote brain games and understanding the difference there and you know what makes uh, video game technology potentially beneficial to learning versus other types of games that may not exactly have that kind of impact. Well, I think the first thing you want to do in, in anything that you're going to research is you want to check the research. Is there any sort of published peer-reviewed research, any sort of field studies? And where are those field studies? Who are they with? That's what's the first thing you want to do. You want to understand what kind of research supports whatever it is you're considering. That's number one. But number two, as it relates to brainware and video games, we have this philosophy. A lot in school tends to most often, they kind of move kids around based upon their age or their grades. We don't believe in that. We believe you have to meet an individual developmentally where they are. We believe that you must earn their respect and their trust and their confidence. We believe that you must be able to demonstrate your trust and, and confidence and respect for them. If we don't do that, they're not going to go anywhere. So the two ways we do that, number one is video games. Children love games. They love them. If you want to deal with a child, that's where they sit. That's where they live. The second thing is, is we want to make sure we meet them developmentally where they are. So we meet them right there with the video games. So what we did we took BrainWare, this heavy-duty industrial strength therapy, which is 43 cognitive skills, and we take and we have propagated that into a gaming environment. So it's fun, it's interactive and engaging. Now, brain games for themselves are just about keeping your brain active. They're, they're not really industrial strength therapy. And you got to be careful when you talk about brain training versus brain games. Brain training is something totally different than brain games. And video games typically are designed for two things, for gameplay and for entertainment, storylines, entertainment. Brainware is designed to achieve a very specific revolt. We are interested in building their capacity for learning or building their intelligence for learning. We want to make all of their underlying learning skills as strong as they possibly can. And we want to do it in a very engaging, fun, interactive way because in doing anything, the first thing you got to be able to do with people is you got to capture their attention. If you don't have their attention, you're not going to do anything with them. So we have a very a complete system, a five-step system that allows us through all these different <clears throat> actions and activities that we do that has a high level engagement. Because if you don't engage people, you're not going to be able to do much with them. And <clears throat> that's what we are able to do with the video gaming what I would call the video gaming skin, if you will. It's really heavy-duty industrial strength therapy. We took all of the best clinical practices, for example, speech and language pathologists, clinical psychology, occupational therapists, vision developmental, auditory, neurology. All of those best practices are woven into brainware. Brainware is very much an approach to building the brain because the brain is a highly comprehensive, integrated systemic organ. And if you're going to have any substantial physiological change in the brain, with demonstrated sustainability and transfer, you must build the brain the way the brain was built to work. And so that's that comprehensive integrated architecture that we use that makes it so dynamically effective. Right, and you reference the attention engagement, right? That's that emotional response and those things that really connect kids to what they're doing, what they're learning, and then it can bring in a level of challenge and difficulty and, and things that aren't 
you know, easy to accomplish at all. And yet the, the motivation is there because they're connected to it. They're engaged, they're attentive to what they're doing. They're picking up on these little nuances and, and learning as they go. You also referenced meeting kids where they are developmentally, right? And so that leads into this book has this five-step approach you know, that's laid out for parents to support their, their child's learning. And of course, it, it also relates to the entire comprehensive experience. Step one is take the wheel and it's for parents to really play that active role in learning, not just assume that everything just happens at the school, but to really see where is their opportunity to get involved. And a big piece of that is that you say parents notice first, right? Parents are going to notice areas where their child is struggling or how they're learning or what they're having a hard time with and all of these various things that they may sometimes assume that the teacher notices the same thing, but that's not necessarily the case because the teacher doesn't know the kid as well. They haven't known them as long. They're, they're also observing a lot of other students, right? So sometimes they may see certain things, sometimes they may not, or at least it can enhance their understanding. But I was curious to know, how do we make this work for the kids from that perspective of both educator and parent getting on the same page and being able to observe, communicate, and then address, okay, here are the areas of struggle. Here are some things that may relate to the way this child learns best and really make it work for that kid to start doing something new sooner than later. Well, it certainly has to be a collaborative process. People, <clears throat> this is not an indictment of every teacher or every classroom or every school, or every district. But when you look at only about a third of our children are performing proficiently at grade level, that leaves a lot of room for growth. Now, we have some pretty dynamic classrooms, some pretty dynamic schools, and some pretty dynamic districts. So, but the problem is all this high performance where we know where that sets, we've not been able to find a way to replicate and duplicate that at scale. So nationally, statistics are not very encouraging. And the challenge becomes in school, if your child learns differently, teachers work awfully hard. And if I was going to start a society tomorrow, I think I would start with teachers. Uh, they're kind, they're considerate, they're well-educated, some are smart. And they really want to do the right thing for the right reasons. Teachers don't say, I want to be a billionaire and go into teaching. Teachers want to help people. And they will do everything they can to help a child. The challenge becomes the system does not provide teachers with the resources that they need to help children that learn differently. The best they got is an IEP, an educational, individual educational plan. And that's designed to work around your underlying cognitive deficiencies. They never want to really assess for that unless you're a gifted child or you're really an extreme situation, some sort of special ed category. They don't test it. They have no idea. They look at a child coming across the street. He's got a head. He's got a couple of arms. He's good to go. All I got to do is take my stuff and shove it in their head. How's that working for us? I used to say the right to learn was a civil rights issue of today. I think it's gone beyond that now. I think it's now it's a national security risk because performing a 30%, 35% proficiency level we're gonna collapse, collapse economically from within. There's no way that we can withstand and continue to grow with that kind of productivity at the student level. So the first thing I think a parent needs to do is to recognize that the school is limited in the resources they're going to offer them. And they gotta recognize that the Calvary is not coming. So they have to take an active role in their student's life. If their child learns differently, they've gotta step up and take an active role in their life. And I think, as we talked about, it, taking the wheel. But then secondly, setting high standards. Have high expectations. And you say, oh, my God, I don't want to crush my child. 
That's a bunch of hockey pucks. Set high expectations, but then build their cognitive infrastructure, build their capacity for learning. Think about everything you've done in your life. Before we got on the show, we talked about a number of things that you did. And even for Buck, you may be skilled in what you're skilled at. Every time you went to a new company, they had their way of doing things, right? They had to train you how they do what they do. Is that correct? They could try. Okay. Well, that was their role. The point being is the only place we don't have any training is training students how to learn. We spend a lot of teachers spend hundreds of thousands of dollars getting a degree to teach. We have all kinds of professional development, lots of work for teachers, but we never prepare a child for learning. And we always like to say, well, it's because of the home. Well, if we really believe that, why aren't we doing something to prepare the child for learning? Because we can. And that's what this book is about. This book is about empowerment. This book is about aspiration. This book is about inspiration. That you, because something is wrong or something is not right for your child, it's not a death sentence. You can be empowered to do something about your child's ability to learn. Because the false lie that's been spread for 100 years that intelligence is fixed is a lie. It's just that it's not fixed. And we can build it to far greater degree than anyone ever thought possible. Because I'm going to tell you this. God did not create any junk, and he didn't start with any child you ever met or any child you ever will meet. There's a special little kind of person in every young person trying to find a way to step into their best selves. And that's what this book is about. It's about empowering teachers and parents to empower their children to step into their best selves. Because if you want true equity, you want true social justice, don't indoctrinate them on what to think. Empower them with the ability to think, to read, to write, to comprehend, and to apply information. That's true equity. That's true social justice. You talked about this importance of preparing um, a child for learning, right? To learn how to learn. And that leads to uh, that critical question that you share here in this part of the book. What is learning? <laughs> Tell parents, ask yourself and your child's teacher, what is learning? And, you know, I think we have to adequately answer that question first before we are preparing children to do that. You know, so how would you say most, most adults, are they equipped to, to answer that question successfully? Well, I think this, these children don't come out uh, of the womb with, a, with an instruction booklet, okay? I often give talks to social service groups and churches and synagogues and things of that nature, and it's always with groups of parents. And the first thing I always ask, how many people in here have a child? I know it's a rhetorical question. Everybody raises their hands excitedly. And then I say, well, how many people in here have a PhD in parenting? And everybody looks at me like a deer in headlights. I said, I get it. I get it. Crazy things happen. And next morning you wake up and tell dad, guess what? We're going to have a baby. And then you're on your mad search because you want to be the best parent you can be. Think about when you first found out you were going to be a father. You were thinking about the children that you admired. You were thinking about parents that you admired. And you were thinking about all the things you want to be able to do to give your child a better opportunity at everything than you even had. So the point being is it's trial and error. They don't really know. They don't really understand. But I think what one people do understand is they want a positive, self-sustaining, proactive human being in their immediate household, in their community at large. I think they do want that. And what I tell them, if you really want that, the greatest thing you can do to optimize the likelihood of that outcome is to build their cognitive infrastructure for learning and max it out to the best it can possibly be. Because the, the, the future, what's going to define an effective future, in my opinion, in work, is your ability to learn, your ability to assimilate, 
process, comprehend, and apply information effectively and efficiently. So when things come at you, you don't feel overwhelmed or overpowered. You have a calmness to you. You don't have a lot of knee-jerk reactions because you know you can handle it. You can think this through. You can have analytics ability, analytical ability to, to think things through, to have problems solved because you can read and you can understand what you read and you can apply what you understand. And you have good social cues, good cognitive flexibility, recognizing when the environment around you changes, how you have to change and adapt to that environment to make the most out of every interaction that you have. So we've talked... Uh, a fair amount here about that every child has the ability to develop their capacity to learn, right? And every child can become an effective learner. And, you know, part of that is this next step here, which is around setting high standards. The old way might be lowering expectations for a child who is struggling or who is diagnosed with a learning disability or otherwise having a hard time in school. But the, the new way is setting high standards and providing kids with tools to meet them. Why is it hard sometimes to do this, to set these high standards, like what's the pull to, to actually lower expectations instead? Well, it's interesting, setting high, hits, high expectations, um, it's really a state of mind that the parent has or the teacher has, or when you look at successful people, it's an, it become, eventually it becomes an internal thing as you begin to grow and develop, you have high expectations. And we've got into this rut of, well, everybody gets a trophy that plays. I mean, there's no winners, there's no losers. You can't have winners, you can't have losers, you can't have good. Look, I mean, God couldn't figure out good without bad. God couldn't figure out right without wrong. There is no top without a bottom. There's no east without a west. So we're fo focusing, in my mind, on a lot of nonsensical stuff. The reality is you should have confidence in that human being. God did not make any junk, as I said earlier, and he didn't start with any child. Set high expectations, but you, you got to do several things with that. It's not stand alone. You got to empower that child with the ability to match those expectations. So you got to, because the number one thing, what's going to be so important as you move through life is good learners. The best workers, the people that are going to go the farthest in life are going to be good learners because your job, your requirements today, we don't, today we have no idea what type of careers we're training children to do. Whatever the jobs are, it would be something different than 20 years ago. So you're going to have a really, high capabilities to simulate, process, comprehend, and apply information effectively and efficiently. So learning is going to be the top skill that most employers are going to want. They're going to want people that can learn quick, on the die, internalize it, and then apply it to be productive. And so when you do that, you need to build that cognitive foundation. And it's and you got to move beyond grit. It's not just about working hard. You got to work smart. And these are the things you need to think about when you're developing as a human being. And I think parents don't really understand how that learning process takes place. I know they do not. Most teachers don't know how learning takes place. They don't teach teachers anything about learning and teaching college. They teach them how to teach. They're only judged on teaching. They're, am I teaching my classroom to best practice? Am I managing my classroom to best practice? Am I a subject matter expert in a curriculum or a grade level subject matter by a state assessment? That's it. They can flunk every child on Friday and they get their check. People don't realize that. They are not taught. If any teacher knows about learning in a very meaningful way, they went out on their own, and many have, and researched the concept of neuroscience and cognitive science and neuroplasticity and all these different things. And now they have a great understanding, but most teachers don't. So they don't know what to tell them. They'll, they'll tell them again and tell them again. They'll write it. They'll speak it. 
it's it, but it's not that a simple thing. It's not a simple thing if you're learning if your cognitive capacities are not there. Now, if you got the cognitive infrastructure, teacher can teach you anything. They're great at teaching. Right, and a part that's so that is critical about this is that the you know the standards and the support have to go together. Right? There's a quote in the book about from Lady Bird Johnson about kids will kind of live up to the expectations we have of them, but it could be a double-edged sword when we set these high expectations without adequately providing support in a pathway and knowing how to get there that then kids are just perpetually feeling like they're not living up to expectations. Yeah, right? and, and it can lead to depression and other things and anxiety. And you don't want to put the little guy or little person in that spot or you know anybody in that spot. You don't want to put anybody in a spot where they have to feel anxious or they have anxiety or they feel stressed in a negative way on an ongoing basis. So you have to give them the tools. And the sad part of it is when a child learns differently and they're working with the school doesn't have a lot of answers. Uh, as I said, workarounds, accommodations, they can scaffold it differently, they can chunk it differently. They'll do pullouts. Uh, they'll give less instructions, more time on a test. But that didn't get the underlying problem solved. They deal with symptoms. They don't want to try to identify cause and remediate. Now, I've talked to a million, not millions, but thousands of parents. And typically what a parent does, if, they, if something's not working in the classroom, and then they may act, seek for other services within the school. Maybe it's a principal, maybe it's a superintendent, maybe it's a counselor. If that doesn't work, then they typically run to a tutor. Well, what does a tutor do? A tutor does what a teacher does. They teach. They're not going to fix anything. And if you're looking at any of these big tutoring, tutoring firms, their whole model is customer lifetime value. If you're going to need a tutor in third grade math, you're going to need a tutor in fourth grade and fifth grade and sixth grade and seventh grade, on and on. So what we focus on is identifying what are the underlying blocks or barriers to that child's ability to learn and remediate those and mainstream them. And that's what we focus on is helping empower that child with the ability to learn. Yeah, and I think, I mean, it's just to skip a step in a sense, but the fourth step in here, I think move beyond grit, that students need confidence, not grit. It's all relates together, right? That idea of grit being that you're, you're persevering and you're resilient, but that also, if it's a perpetual cycle of requiring grit, that it might mean that you're just feeling like you're mired in a cycle of not succeeding or not having the confidence that you will continue to get better um, and succeed. And you also shared in the, you know, in the introduction to the book, you have a variety of belief statements and, and one being that learning struggles affect families too, not just the student, that lowering the stress and anxiety of a child uh, by helping them become capable and confident in their learning can decrease the stress level for the entire family. So these things are all interconnected as far as the overall capabilities, I think, of what schools are able to do for all learners, because even if it is for only a certain number of students in the school for whom the anxiety and stress is ratcheted up, they're feeling like they're not succeeding, they're feeling like the school is not positioning them to succeed and is ineffective at clarifying and communicating what resources are in place, what steps are being taken to see, to, to instill that confidence that we're heading in the right direction, everybody's just starting from where they're starting from, then the entire relationship breaks down, right? Then we have families who lose faith in the schools and the educators and you know, everybody's having these different feelings about one another because really it comes back to that lack of confidence in one another and what we're doing to support learners, confidence for the learner and what their you know, learning environment situation is. And, you know, can you talk more about the importance of that confidence and then 
how growth mindset fits into that. Well, confidence is, is everything. We have an enormous success factor in building confidence. When you build confidence and you build self-esteem, you automatically, a side benefit is you lower anxiety and stress. And you said it earlier, you not only, because when you have a child that learns different in the home, stress and anxiety levels are high for everybody. And if you can make it easier for that child to learn, lower their stress, lower their anxiety levels by developing their self-confidence and their self-confidence is developed through the ability to learn. And they now have a growth mindset. When we start out taking that wheel and setting high standards, that is building that growth mindset that you can. And there are ways that you can develop. There are ways that you can be better. We do, the first thing we do is we take a cognitive assessment, nationally normed, and we identify what, because everybody has strengths and everybody has weaknesses, but most people don't know how they really learn in a, in a real, they have opinions, but we move it from an opinion state through our assessments to a scientific fact state. So we can actually pinpoint how that individual learns best. And we can identify their superpowers that they can use in a clutch. So there's all these dynamics and all these development of these skills that comes together that really provides a great opportunity for people to be able to build everything they are about themselves. So back to growth mindset. Growth mindset is believing that you can. And you've got to believe, but you can't make people believe in a vacuum. Just do grit. You've got to empower them with the tools to believe. You've got to, so they feel confident. And that's what we're able to do is to build that confidence by providing them with the tools to build that cognitive infrastructure for learning. But you start out by setting those high standards, taking the wheel, taking individual responsibility and an internal belief structure that you can actually do better. And once you believe that, and then you actually start doing better, that just changes the ball game. Now it's all of a sudden, everything slows down for you as they talk about in sports, learning slows down. You become a much better learner. You become easier for the teachers to teach you. You become easier for yourself to learn. And not only do you lower the stress and anxiety level of the student and the family, but you lower the stress and anxiety level of a teacher because teachers are great people. They want to do good. They want to help every student because that's what they are. They're helpers. And they want to help every student have the best chance to be the best they can be. And when you deliver the teacher a classroom full of students prepared for learning, with the growth mindset and have the ability to learn what they're dying to teach you, that lowers the stress and anxiety levels of the teachers. And believe me, we that's important. Teachers are under a lot of pressure, under a lot of pressure. That's why I'm after the system every day. They need to help the teachers by putting students in the classroom better prepared to learn. Right. And so as you're referring to learning, you talk about the cognitive infrastructure for learning. What are the key elements of that cognitive infrastructure? Well, there's a lot of cognitive skills. Mm -hmm. We work on 43. The 43 that we work on are about attention skills, process, visual processing, auditory processing skills. There's just a whole, I would say one person likes a whole slew of cognitive skills that we work on. There are some people that work on singular skills like maybe work on just memory skills or they work on comprehension skills or things of that nature. But that's why you don't get the sustainability. There's always been the discussion about when you build this cognitive infrastructure about sustainability and transfer. Well, if, if you recognize that the brain is a highly comprehensive integrated systemic organ, you, you understand why the comprehensiveness of a cognitive skill development program is so important. But the main categories is you have attention skills, visual processing skills, auditory processing, sensory integration, 
and memory skills and executive functions, logic and reasoning skills, and higher order executive function skills. That's another fallacy people have. They think executive functions can be built in a vacuum. If you really want to optimize executive functions, you really have to build them in a highly comprehensive integrated structure if you want sustainability and transfer. People don't think about all the different skills that come together in making you a good reader. They think about reading. What Now they've got phonics and phemic awareness, and you've got coding, decoding, if you will. you got fluency and you got comprehension. If that's where they focus, and if that's working great, you're good. But if that's not, what are the real underlying skills that make up one's ability to be a good reader? Oftentimes, people don't think about that. There's a, that's really the basics is that's really not the basics. When you talk about reading and cognitive skills, there's there are program there's skills that are far more basic than just the ones that we commonly refer to. To give you an example, I was just thinking about this and talking with a parent the other day about cognitive skills and reading. And I was sharing with them that when you look at this deeply, let's just take decoding, for example. I often ask, where's the decoding part of the brain? There is no decoding part of the brain. But if you're going to be a good decoder, you need good, strong, sustained attention skills, good, strong visual discrimination skills, good, strong sequential processing skills, good, strong auditory discrimination skills. Now, if you don't do a comprehensive cognitive assessment, you would never know where that child functions on these skill levels because everything's not nothing's black or white everything's on a spectrum and if decoding's not working what do you do typically they do more decoding work on phonics work on femic awareness but if you want to really make that whole process much more simpler and easier for the student look at the underlying roots superintendent me said one time he says roger our problem in education we spend all of our time watering the leaves we never water the roots the same in fluency you need visual span, flexible attention, processing speed. These are the underlying skills that drive a competent person with strong fluency skills. Comprehension. You need strong planning skills, visualization, working memory. So these underlying skills are there, and people need to be aware that they're there. And depending on what you're trying to do, and reading underlies everything. So you can, you're going to get X amount of students but the Orton-Gillingham News, the science of reading has been around for 30 years, but you're going to get some value there. There is no doubt. But there are people that do not have those strong underlying skills. It's going to be a load for them. It's going to be a real load. Same way with, with SEL. When you talk about SEL and learning skills, you say about that. Well, they often talk about SEL. What's critical for SEL? Executive function skills, inhibitory control, cognitive flexibility, and working memory. If those skills aren't working well, you're not going to have a great experience with SEL because the people that you really need to know SEL are typically the lower performing students. You're rock star. You're top 35, 40% of your classroom. You're going to be able to tell them SEL and teach them and it's going to work. But it's those ones that they can't figure out a math problem. They can't figure out how to read. And you think they're going to stick with SEL when a fight gets ready to pop up or something and they're going to have the intimidator control not to punch a guy in the mouth. It's not going to happen. The pipe dream. When If a parent were to get their child coach to help with the, the cognitive skill development, what would that look like? Well, it depends on how they do it. But we, we do it in schools, for example. The great thing about what people love about us and working in schools, and I want to talk about at home as well, but 
in school, teachers, precious teachers are worth their weight in gold. It's so hard to find great teachers. And when you find great teachers, you want to hold on to them and you want to get their best. And that's their best teaching skills. When you talk about the science of reading, you're going to, have to use your best teachers to teach that. A lot of teachers, they don't understand phonics and phemic awareness. So they have to spend all kinds of extra stipend money to get these teachers to just to try to learn it. And so that's going to tax the process. And if a teacher that learns the science of reading leaves the school district, that resource leaves with her or with him. One thing about brainware, you don't need a teacher to oversee the coaching of brainware. You can use a teacher's aid. And when you develop that child's for capacity for learning, that's never going to leave that child. No matter who leaves the school, who doesn't leave the school, or wherever that child goes, they're going to be prepared for learning. So in a school environment, typically a teacher's age is the one that oversees a classroom of 15, 20, or 30 kids and acts as the coach. And there's tools to do that. Now, on a home environment, we do one-on-one -on -one in coaching. We do blended coaching where we share the coaching responsibilities. We have a brainware cognitive master coach that would work with the child one or two times a week, and the parents would work with the child one or two times a week. And then we have a model where we do all of the coaching. A brainware cognitive master coach works with that child individually throughout the entire sessions. It's, there's typically 36 sections. It's about 27 hours. To put that perspective for you, I don't know if you've ever heard, there's a company out there called Aerosmith. They are a cognitive school. They're all about the science of learning. They just had a couple of schools. Now they got 75 schools around the world, 35 in the United States. They charge $35,000 a year per student. Now they do have a home program. In the home program, they want one hour a day, five days a week for 10 months. That's 200 hours. Now they're going to get you some growth in that 200. We want 27 hours. And we get an average of two to three years of academic growth and three to four years of cognitive growth in that 12-week period. Nobody in the world has ever been able to show that kind of growth. That's why this book is so important. Right. And, you know, as we're getting close to concluding, there's another aspect, and you have touched on this earlier, but I think it's worth reiterating why this is all so important and it's related to it's the future right it's the future of work it's jobs of the future it's the it's that not totally clear we can't totally predict exactly what's going to happen but we know it's going to be a lot different than it is today and there's these various flexible nimble adaptable skills and competencies and, and the knowledge base that kids need to be developing so they're prepared for that and that's what's even schools now, right? Where they don't know exactly what that's going to look like, but we know certain things about it. But I wanted to open that up again before we close to say like, that's right. Looking ahead, that's the vision of what this is all about. It's not just about who's getting better test scores today. It's not just about present, present day equity and access and better learning. These are all important things too, but it's also about what is the skill base that will be required to be able to adapt to whatever comes next. Well, if you empower an individual with the ability to learn, I think, and because your cognitive skills are agnostic to any particular content, any particular race, any particular, it's your underlying ability to assimilate, process, comprehend, and apply information, to learn effectively and efficiently, to be able to read and understand what you read and be able to apply that. 
to be in social settings and understanding when things around you change, how do you have to adapt and interact with you? Because what you do is very important, but how you do what you do is just as important as what you do. You've got to be able to get along with people and work with people, and you have to be competent. And the greatest underlying factor to all of that is your cognitive profile. So everyone should understand what they're coming. It's funny, you would say that we're now doing with a, a dating service con contact us because people get married. They have this chemistry. And I say, you should not even consider getting married unless your potential person takes a comprehensive cognitive assessment. Now you know how their brain works. Now you know how they think. You know how they're going. And then you can understand if, they, if you see some big gaps where you know that at some point that's going to be problematic, you can say, look, you got to remediate this or we can't get married. I bet you're going to have a lot longer marriage if you understand that right off the bat. We make every one of our employees take a comprehensive cognitive assessment before they can join our team. We need to understand what we're dealing with. And if we feel they have particular gaps or something that could be problematic and working in the future, we'll give them a shot. You can remediate this and we'll keep you on our adios. Because we the, the brain, how the brain functions. I, I tell people all the time, a couple of things I would like to say today about building people's cognitive capacity for learning. Today, we have schools of struggle everywhere we look and everywhere we turn. These inner, we got some school, I'm in Chicago. We got some classrooms in Chicago that haven't seen a teacher in two years. All they've had is a teacher's aide. And it's going to get worse. More and more teachers are living. And that's another discussion for another time. But today we have schools of struggle. And what we're brain we're trying to do is we're trying to build classes of hope. And that's what we're all about because the greatest obstacle, and I'll leave you with this note, the greatest obstacle to discovery, it's not ignorance. It is the illusion of knowledge. And what we're trying to do is bridge that knowledge gap. Yeah, I mean, that's absolutely so. And you mentioned earlier that, you know, the book and the approach is really about empowerment for students and their learning. And there's a lot of elements of empowerment for teachers and parents as well. I mean, there's a, a productive way for parents to really get involved in a hands-on effective fashion supporting their child's education parents want to do that but a lot of times they don't know how to do it right so I'm not sure what to focus on what can i do that i really make a difference and for educators as well to say there are certain elements of teaching the comprehensive cognitive skills and development for students that are operating at various levels with all these kids it's unrealistic to expect one teacher to be able to do everything and by having tools that help with that, that can be administered by aides, that there could be a collaborative approach. It enables every student to have access to the learning that they deserve, every educator to focus on their skills and expertise, parents to contribute that empowerment for everybody, because it really, the cliche is it takes a village, but it's a collaborative process to ensure that every student really has the opportunity to learn and to grow and to achieve their potential. You're, you're absolutely right. And, and just think about it. The, these valuable assets, we got, we're, we're not helping. We got these teachers and, and teaching and brick and mortar and the teacher's salary is two of the biggest cost factors in education. So if, if, if the investment in teaching is one of our biggest cost factors, why don't we want to do everything we can to help our teachers have the best experience they can? Why aren't we doing every, giving them everything we can to help them be the best teacher? If we respect teachers, like we say we do, why aren't school administrators in our system giving teachers the tools that they need to be effective for their students? It, it, we as a society, if we believe our struggles extend from the home, 
And we got Maslow's law. We got to make sure they have a home. They got to have a roof on their head first. We got to have a bed sleeping. Got to have food. Got to have clothes. There's basic things. But right close to all that basic is to empower this child with the ability to learn. Level that playing field. Because you're gonna, it's going to be a win from everybody if that child can learn easily and effectively. And that's, it's as I said, it's not people, because there's a lot of smart people we're dealing with here. And they're all just letting this set here. It's like these children are just little fruits and they're letting them rot on the vine. And I go into these districts, I talk to these people about it. And politics has unfortunately played a role in everything. And it's certainly heavy in education and particularly public education. I don't know what they're going to do and how they're going to do it, but man, they ought to be moving faster. Right. And so listener, whether you're a parent or an educator or both, check out the strategies in this book, get an understanding of the you know, cognitive skill development, the infrastructure for learning, how to support your struggling student. My guest has been Roger Stark. The book is Your Child Learns Differently. Now what? You can find it on Amazon, Barnes & Noble. Um, we'll also put the website below for Brainware where you can find a page where you can look Learn more about the book. Find it anywhere you buy your books. Subscribe to The Authority for more in-depth author interviews like this one and visit bpodcast.network to learn about all of our shows. Roger, thanks for being on the show. Thank you for allowing us to be on the show. And we really appreciate the time. Excellent. Well, thank you so much. Thanks for sharing your message. And listeners, we hope you enjoyed. And check us out next time. This has been The Authority Podcast, hosted by Ross Romano, edited by Gage Sanderson. Do you want to simplify your school's technology, save teachers time, and improve students' performance on state assessments? You can do it all, but don't waste another minute. Head straight to IXL.com forward slash BE to learn how IXL's research-proven teaching and learning platform can help you achieve all of these goals. That's IXL.com forward slash B-E.